Hello everybody, and welcome to the Christmas episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. As promised last time, I am watching Where No Man Has Gone Before. This is uh, on Netflix, I'm already straight into it, with the captain's log telling us the plot, basically. Uh, that shot of the Enterprise that opens the Enterprise, the Enterprise, that opens the episode is not one of the best CGI upgrades. Uh, our first ever look at Captain James T. Kirk, as portrayed by then 35-year-old, 34-year-old, sorry, William Shatner. Instantly, even though Spock doesn't look like Spock and smiles, though, as he just did, and his haircut's not quite right, and his eyebrows don't exactly give me life, as my daughter would say. Interesting that he mentions the line missing there, but you may learn to live with it one day. What I like about this is in the ready room, or briefing, not the briefing room, the wherever they are, they're actually, um, there are actually people not in uniform, like we saw in the cage. As with the cage, the uniforms are slightly different to what they would be in the series. Everyone seems to wear a variation on very light green and uh, a more beigey yellow. Scotty, the Jimmy Doohan, in his first appearance, is wearing a slightly different colour of top to, to Shatner and Nimoy. Uh, I love Where No Man Has Gone Before. I've uh, made no secret of the fact that I think this is a great episode. A great pilot episode. What I like about this one is it just throws you right in. It's just another mission of the Enterprise. I mean, clearly, once we get into the series, it's a good couple of months, maybe a year earlier than what we see in the series. The change in uniform, the slight change in crew. Shatner arrives fully formed, fully developed. He knows who Kirk is from frame one. Alexander Courage providing the music again, as he did with the cage. Interestingly... The only episode of the show as... Oh! The Netflix version has Space the Final Frontier. Which the original erring didn't. Well, that's shocked me. I've obviously not watched this one on Netflix before. Obviously, this is the redone credits. Join in with me. This is Star Trek. We're all going on a Star Trek with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy as Spock. It's a Star Trek. There you go. There's your Christmas treat. Um, the special effects in this one have been, because this is the Netflix version, redone. Uh, then I, I presume this was an early one because they aren't as good as they would be in later episodes. Our introduction here to Gary Mitchell, played by Gary Lockwood, on his way out to be in 2001. Interestingly, I mean, is it actually specified? And we'll keep our eye open for this. The idea here is, isn't it, that Gary Mitchell's his first officer in this episode, not Spock. 
and it's spoilers, Mitchell's death that allows Spock to be promoted to first officer. A lot of changes would happen to the front of the bridge before the show would again go to series. The back of the bridge looks pretty similar to what we're used to, apart from the seats. The seats are different. But when you get the over-shoulder shots of the helm, the view screen is significantly different. It doesn't look as empty when you get into the series. I don't know what purpose Yeoman Smith serves. She seems to just be there to look pretty. Spock still shouts everything. You'll have just heard him. Memory bags. Good plot to this one as well. Apparently there were three episodes that were put forth for NBC to choose as the uh, episode. He gets Smith mixed up with Jones, which I don't believe Captain Kirk would do at all. Her line delivery of the name Smith, sir, is not very good. You could tell she was a model, not an actress. Uh, DeForest Kelly is not present again, although Mash's Sally Kellerman is. Jimmy Doohan and George Takai, both present and correct, although not really doing very much, it has to be said. In fact, Yeoman Smith just stands there very stiffly. I, I, I would say I wonder who she was um, sleeping with, but on this show it could be anybody. Oh, there was. He originally, apparently, Gary Mitchell said she was frigid, though, in the script, and NBC objected to that word, which is where Walking Freezer Unit came from. One of the things that is a marvel about this, I mean, a lot of shows, a lot of people will tell you certain shows don't really get going until, you know, two, three seasons in. I don't have the time for that. I need a show that's going to hook me from the beginning. Now, The Cage was a very different beast to this. Has a very different feel to this. And a lot of that, as Leonard Nimoy pointed out in numerous interviews, is down to Shatner. Shatner comes in and he owns the role. He owns the role of the captain. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what the role should be. His performance in this episode is revelatory for those who only know the later caricatured Shatner, which I argue only really started in the 80s with with T.J. Hooker. You know, he had a a tendency for histrionics in the third season of Star Trek, but I recently watched two episodes of Columbo back-to-back with two performances by Shatner, and the 70s performance was significantly less mannered, less caricatured than the 90s performance. Although in both cases, I have to say, he was not playing William Shatner and he wasn't playing James T. Kirk. He he played two completely different characters. This is, um, again, another thing Shatner doesn't get a lot of credit for is how good an actor he actually is. Just watch this episode. His performance in this, his performance here, it's very naturalistic. There's no over-the-top. There's no hamming. But he knows how to play to the camera. He, he was a leading man from the beginning. Um, some actors aren't, some are. Good, interesting science fiction idea at the, at the heart of this episode, that there is an edge to the known galaxy. Some people 
at the time this was made thought that was a load of horse hooky. I think Harold and Ellison famously thought it was a stupid idea. But Isaac Asimov, I believe, put forward a, a theory that was generally considered scientifically sound as to why this could be. Um, I, I believe Asimov was, was a Star Trek fan or a Star Trek viewer at the very least. Again, like the cage, this is light years ahead of other genre television of the time. You know, Doctor Who, Doctor Who was great, but at this time, 1966, we were just saying goodbye to William Hartnell, moving into Patrick Troughton. Despite the imagination on displaying Doctor Who, it was still very much the BBC's idea of filming um, a play and putting it on TV. This was light years ahead of what was going on in genre television over on Irwin Allen's stuff. Some of these redone CG shots here, we've got the Enterprise approaching the Great Barrier. Some of these early CG redo-overs are not as impressive as they would later be. The Enterprise, though, look particularly weightless, which I know it's in space. So don't don't get on my back about that because I, I understand that. But the model have the models have heft, if you know what I mean. Whereas that CG model didn't have that heft. How professional is it in the workplace that Gary Mitchell is holding Yeoman Smith's hands? Yeoman Smith's awful acting though when she reacts to the explosion quite badly. You know, you've put her in an episode following Susan Oliver in the first one and with Sally Kellerman here, and you've just got to feel a little bit sorry for her. Spock shouting everything again. Very good, very good, very action-packed opener to the episode. Less than nine minutes in, we've been given a lot of action, a lot of drama. It's a very different pilot to the cage. And we're going out of the first act with two members of the crew, Gary Mitchell and Dr. Dana, being targeted by a force field beam of some, some description. That was interesting, Kirk pushing Spock, sorry, pushing Kirk out of the way to get to the helm, and him essentially falling back into the captain's chair. That's good. It's nice seeing Spock take the helm, showing that Spock has multiple functions that he can perform on the bridge. Lot less thoughtful an episode, this, but no less engaging for all of that, and no less engaging in terms of the story. It's just as thought-provoking, it's just as interesting as The Cage. It's just Roddenberry's realised that to sell the show to a network, he's going to have to unput the action, unput the, the drama, unput the action to sell the show. This is a great act-out when we close in on Gary Mitchell's silver eyes. And what I really love about that is that the picture fades out, but his silver eyes stay glowing, even around the rest of the black of the picture. It's a brilliant act out for the episode. Lockwood apparently hated wearing those lenses. Apparently Sally Kellerman didn't have as big a problem with them because she was used to wearing contact lenses, but Lockwood apparently couldn't wear them for more than five, six minutes before he had to take them out because they were just too painful. That scene probably didn't cause a lot of grief. This, again, interesting. The Enterprise is now adrift in space, far out where no one has gone before, where no man has gone before, hence the title. 
Alexander Courage's score for this episode, every bit as good as his score for The Cage. But again, different. It, it's interesting to watch the two either back-to-back or close together, like I've done for, for these two commentaries, and compare that it's still very definitely Star Trek, but it's a different kind of Star Trek. It has a different feel to it than The Cage does in the same way that the original show feels different to the next generation and the films feel different to the next generation and the series and Deep Space Nine is different to next gen. It shows the flexibility of Roddenberry's format and it does beg the interesting question of what is Star Trek? What can Star Trek be? Well, judging just by these two pilots alone, it can be anything. It took me a long time to notice that uh, Nimoy's face, I think I only noticed this when I saw them on DVD, that Nimoy's face is yellow in this. I'd never noticed that in, in the cage before, even if it's true. It's like the makeup in this one is a lot more severe than in the cage. If this episode lacks something, it's DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy. I mean... You don't really notice that Sulu doesn't have a big role or Scotty has a big role or whatever. Um, the big guest star roles in this one are Lee Kelso, who is the helmsman in this, who you can assume had a number of other adventures with the crew uh, before he got killed off in this episode. It would be nice to do a comic book series set in the first year of Kirk's mission that is this crew. No Dr. McCoy. Although, other external media like one of my all-time favorite star trek stories outside of the comic outside of the show sorry is the comic uh star trek annual one by mike w bar which establishes that mccoy is his chief medical officer but he's taken a leave of absence whilst this episode happens to go off to joanna's high school graduation joanna being his daughter which is which is neat but i would like i prefer to think that mccoy wasn't on the ship from the beginning I like to think the idea that he was brought on after Boyce retired or moved on or was reassigned or, or whatever, because it gives the idea that the Enterprise crew isn't stagnant. Watch out for Lieutenant Kirk in his class. You either think or sink. The implication here, something that is missed by a lot of people who don't understand the character, that Kirk is just this brash guy who goes around sleeping through his way through the galaxy, whereas Kirk... Is actually a very thoughtful and intelligent guy who became a little bit of a maverick when he became captain. Because he's out on the frontier. He's he's basically has to make his own decisions. Uh, that reference there to the little blonde tra- technician who Kirk almost married has been retconned by the fan base more, I think, than anything that has been established in canon or even in the novels to be Carol Marcus. Um, which works, you know, as, as retcons go, or as fans knitting all this stuff into one linear narrative goes, that, that works quite well. I mean, it could just as easy be Ruth, who we learn about in Shore Leave, but again, it's it ties into this idea that Kirk was a very serious student in getting his captaincy, something they completely missed the point of in the JJ movies with Chris Pine first inclination that something's happening to Gary 
But the idea that Kurt would have met somebody and considered marrying them in the academy when he's a serious young man, becoming more footloose and fancy-free as he becomes a captain and realises that he's not going to stay in one place. He's captain of a starship. He's going to move from place to place. So it's a, a retcon from the fans, once again, showing that fans sometimes know what they're talking about, that really works. Do, do, do. Kurt got to the bridge quick, has to be said. Leonard Nimoy's performance as Spock is quite different in this episode from The Cage. He said in interviews that was because he was now playing opposite William Shatner, who was a much more passionate performer. Brought a much more flamboyant Errol Flynn-like quality to the set than Jeffrey Hunter did. Spock also the voice of reason. And again, this episode lays waste to the claim that Star Trek was an ensemble. Now, in the first 13 episodes, I would argue that it was. You know, Sulu and Uhura had big roles in those early episodes, bigger than Spock in many ways. But this episode is very definitely a star vehicle for Captain James T. Kirk. And Shatner, to sign on, apparently got a substantial salary somewhere in the region of, was it, it says in Cushman's book, it was something like $7,000 for this one episode compared to Nimoy's 2500 very definitely a star of the show before Spock would become as important as he did and Nimoy would start using that for leverage. Uh, nice to see Elizabeth Dana in pants. Again, something that would change when it went to series. I actually think the ladies look better in trousers in some of these. You know, I mean, there's nothing against some of them wearing miniskirts. Some women prefer skirts. They should be allowed to. The workplace, you should be allowed to wear what you want, especially in Star Trek's era. So if a lady wants to wear a miniskirt, feel free. But I, I think Elizabeth Dana suits the pants look rather than the miniskirt. I also like that her uniform is ever so slightly different with the, the blue as opposed to the slightly green of Kirk and Spark and the yellow of Scotty. So again, they're already paying some attention to the difference between the departments they're in. If you actually have a look at this, I don't know if this is because it's HD on um, on Netflix, but Gary Lockwood's eyes do look quite swollen throughout this scene, probably because this is he's having to keep the lenses in for quite a substantial amount of time here. Gary Mitchell starts showing his uh, his teasing side as he pretends to die. It's been established Mitchell was already a prankster, you know. His lines and community, and all very well done as well, all done in shorthand in this one episode, establishing the relationship between him and Kirk and that Mitchell was the prankster in college where they were friends, but there may have been a friendly rivalry. Uh, Michael Jan Friedman wrote three novels about Mitchell and Kirk, which I've never read, which I kind of always wanted to, but it's one of those things you never got around to, to flesh out this relationship. Just in this one episode, I don't mean to keep harkening back to the J.J. films and my many, many problems with those first two of J.J.'s movies, but this one 50-minute episode paints in broad strokes and gives backstory to the characters of Kirk and Mitchell far more effectively than anything that was done in those movies, which just basically went for lowest common denominator, Kirk just shags his way through town and relies on luck and bluffing. Whereas he clearly doesn't. He clearly is a thoughtful, introspective commander, but unlike a lot of other commanders, he is 
handy with his fists. You know, it's not quite as stretching credibility as Doctor Sam Beckett, because he could roundhouse kit like no scientist I've ever seen. But this idea of what Kirk is and what he was actually presented as in the show are very different things. And I do I frequently wonder if JJ actually watched Star Trek before he directed that film. He says he did. But, you know, I'm not convinced. A lot of development given over to the guest stars in this episode as well. There's a lot of time devoted to Elizabeth Mitchell. Uh, Elizabeth Dana. Sorry, Elizabeth Mitchell's an actress, isn't she? Elizabeth Dana. Um, and Gary Mitchell and their relationship. I'd love to know what Yeoman Smith thinks of this, but she's just swept off to the sidelines, never to be given a moment's consideration again. Lee Kelso. Uh, I forget the actor's name. Paul Fix, is he Paul Fix? Or is Paul Fix is the doctor, isn't he? Lee Kelso. He's an actor that shows up in lots of stuff over the years. You recognise his face. I remember him from... He's in The Six Million Dollar Man with Malachi Throne, who was in the cage as a voice. And would be in the, the menagerie. The establishment seems to be that Gary Mitchell has a pretty decent relationship with most of the crew. Uh, here he's showing his antagonistic side. I generally love this episode. I generally think this is a, an exceptional pilot. I'm always interested in watching the pilot episodes to TV shows to see if they do a good job not only of selling the show and selling what the show should be and whether you should tune in on a weekly basis, but whether or not they actually work as entertaining in their own right. And I think this one benefits greatly from not being a 90-minute pilot. I don't know why that decision was made. I don't think I've ever recall ever reading anywhere that there was a decision to have this be a longer pilot like The Cage or whether 90 to 2 minute pilots were even a thing in the 60s. I think that may have only even now they've gone back to not doing that. They don't do feature length pilot episodes anymore. Whereas uh, that was the norm in the 70s and the 80s. Spock being pragmatic, talking about what he's uh, he's used to. It's interesting to look at this from the development of Spock and your planet is supposed not to have feelings, so there's very little development of Vulcan. The idea that uh, one of his ancestors married a human female, he doesn't say his dad, which doesn't flatly contradict Journey to Babel. It wasn't really supported either. Some wriggle room, though, if you want to use it. <laughs> he reads very fast. Is apparently a sign of a mutant power. Apparently I'm a mutant. Ooh. Scotty's first significant lines. See, again... I do wonder what this would have been like with D. Kelly. Apparently Roddenberry wanted D. Kelly. As he did for the cage and was once again told no. D. Kelly was known as a heavy. He played the bad guy. No one would buy him as the avuncular starship doctor. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, 
Elizabeth Dana, Sally Kellerman, one of the best guest stars of the series. This is a really good role for a woman. She's a woman in um, a position of authority. She's not overtly sexualized, although she's very pretty. She's wearing pants, not the miniskirt. She's, it's a very good role for a guest star. Um, Star Trek, you frequently look back at it now and people frequently say, you know, it's a little bit sexist by today's standards, and it probably is. But as as Charlie Brooker pointed out when he was doing his USS Callisto episode of Black Mirror, he didn't want to lean too heavily into taking the piss out of Star Trek's sexism because he openly acknowledged that for the time that it was on the air, it was remarkably progressive. It's only looking back at it now that it's a little bit more sexist, but it's considerably less sexist than other shows of its era. So when he was doing that USS Callisto episode, he was very careful in what you would parody and what you would take the piss off whilst acknowledging that Star Trek still was a progressive show. Interesting for the pilot episode of a Star Trek show, there is a very personal problem at the heart of this. They've done an exceptionally good job of establishing that Captain Kirk and Gary Mitchell are good friends and Spock is putting Captain Kirk in a quandary here. The idea that he may have to kill Gary Mitchell to to save the crew. You know, Encounter at Farpoint doesn't have a personal through line. Neither does Star Trek Voyage's pilot caretaker. Only the cage has a, a through line for the captain. And Deep Space Nine's pilot follows this of having a, an emotional through line for the captain. And Spock very clearly, as the cat wants to go through the door, they're very clearly laying out the alternatives. The ship's stranded, it can't go anywhere, they're on impulse power. They only have two choices. They can ditch him on Delta Vega, which is a nearby planet. And, um... I've lost my track of thought, though, because the cat. Sorry, cat. Oh, yeah, they can ditch him on Delta Vega, where the ore shops only visit, ore shops, or ships only visit every 20 years or so. Or you can kill him outright. And Spock's basically advocating killing him to save the rest of the crew. Some might say that this is a contradiction of the Spark, who would go on to be a dick. The preservation of life at all costs. But as has been mentioned in a number of, of later episodes of the show, Vulcans are quite capable of killing if they deem it logical to do so. I again think that's Journey to Babel, I think. Here, Spock has deemed the logical thing to do here is take Milchel out of the equation. Going into orbit around Delta Vega now, what I like about this shot is the bridge set is considerably darker than it normally is as we go into the series. Now, whether this is supposed to indicate that this is now nighttime on the ship, because there was very few people on the bridge there apart from the captain and a couple of other people. So maybe Kirk's pulling another ship because this decision is weighing heavily upon him, as it would. Um, what's remarkable about this, even now, you know, 50-odd years later... There's no getting away from the fact that that cup flying across the room, there's no visible wire. Now, whether they've painted them out for the HD restoration, I don't know. But it was very impressively done. (coughs) 
excuse me, I got a bit of tickle in my throat. Um, the fact that it floats out of Mitchell's hand as it did there and Shatner just snatches it out of the air. An excellent effect. Such a simple one, but so good at selling Mitchell's abilities now. I mean, it was probably all done on strings, probably little thin strings that you couldn't really see, but it's exceptionally well done. Interesting to note as well, nobody has the Star Trek sideburns apart from Spock. Shatner doesn't have his pointy sideburns. Gary Mitchell doesn't have the pointy sideburns. Whether that was, you know, only something that was decided on for the series or they didn't want to bother doing it to everybody for the pilot. Who could say, even though when Mitchell fires the hand blasts at Kirk and Spock, it's actually Spock who gives a slightly hammier performance there than, than Kirk. You know, Shatner is so underplayed in this episode. It's it's hard to believe it's the same guy in many respects. And yet, it benefits the story immensely to have Captain Kirk be underplaying this because it really does highlight that this is a very tough decision for him. What's happening to his, his best friend of many years. Spot the delivering a punch because the Vulcan neck pinch hasn't been developed yet. That would only come into place in The Enemy Within, which I think is that five five or six episodes into the series, so the, the Vulcan nerve pinch hasn't been developed yet. With Mitchell out cold. Interestingly, there's an interesting little continuity thing that when they were fighting Mitchell in the sick bay and his shirt rode up, he was wearing a vest. And here, when they're loading him onto the transporter pads, he's not wearing a vest underneath his top. And it's the kind of little, you know, continuity glitch that would have gone unnoticed by audiences in 1965 when this originally aired. 1966, sorry. Made in 65, wasn't it? Interestingly, and I still can't believe this, I still can't believe NBC did not choose this one to lead the series off. Because there's there's enough... Oh, Eddie Paskey, though. He, he was all over the show, wasn't he? Um, this episode is significantly different from the main show, and it's a pilot would have made sense. They elected to work two episodes before they showed this one. Which is amazing, because this feels like a pilot. You know, with the different uniforms and everything. Maybe they just thought, 60s television, no one had noticed. Over here, the BBC did her this one first. This was the first episode they showed in June of 1969 as a replacement for Doctor Who. Te colour television was just kicking off in 1969, so the BBC were moving into colour broadcasting. Patrick Troughton had just regenerated, uh, and that would be the last black and white episode of Doctor Who. When it would return with a new lead actor, John Pertwee, in the role, it would be in colour. And Star Trek was deemed a, a good show to take the place of Doctor Who, and a good colour show to, to highlight the BBC's new commitment to colour television. Um, the show, Star Trek, would go on to great success in and of itself, not just as a replacement for Doctor Who and Star Trek would err on BBC One from its debut in 1969 right through to 1982, um, which is quite an impressive run, an almost consistent run. I mean, it wouldn't err every week in those 13 years, but it would err for six months, then go off for a couple of months, then come back and go off and come back. So for 13 years, the show was on the air on um, a network channel. <laughs> I presume that there's a, a backstory novel explaining 
when Mitchell took those darts for Kirk. Interestingly, Kirk's her slightly different in this episode. It's still got the flicked, slicked back look that he would sport in the first series, but he doesn't have the forelock that he would have as the series went on. Um, I'm not that big a student of Shatner to know at what point his her started receding. So I don't know if if there's a toupee in place here. If there is, it's exceptionally good. And much better than those that he would wear in the 80s. And particularly the 70s. You know, his 70s. His 70s toupees. We were, like I mentioned, I just watched a Columbo. And that was a terrible toupee he was wearing. A big clue, though. That his eyes have gone back to normal. Spock determined that his strength can be trained. 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 Not trained. Drained. Can't go back and edit that on a commentary, can I? If a sufficient force is placed against him. That's quite an interesting way to set up the ending to the episode. It's a very well written episode. As I said, three other, two other shows were put forward. With Where No Man Has Gone Before. One would become Mud's Women. One would become The Omega Glory. NBC rejected both of them. One, Mud's Women wasn't considered a pilot. Two, The Omega Glory wasn't considered very good. Uh, and also, this was the most ambitious and science fiction of the three scripts. And the cage had gone over budget and over time. And NBC wanted to see that they could actually produce this show in seven to eight days which would be the standard production schedule that was a nice touch scotty fixing the bridge the way that he put it in and had that little moment of there you go laddie with no lines of dialogue whatsoever they sell that scotty's damn good at his job fares a rifle which uh, a really nice prop that would never be seen again despite the fact it would appear in a number of promotional images for the show. Shatner holding that phaser rifle, but in his first season uniform. Not in the uniform he's wearing here. It's going to be interesting to see what they do with Captain Pike when he shows up in Discovery. Is he going to wear this kind of uniform or is he going to have the black collar? I want you to hit that button. I love, I had the soundtrack to this on vinyl. Uh, this in the Cage was a vinyl release. God, in about 1986 for Star Trek's 20th. One of the first vinyl albums I think I bought with my own money. Um, lovely notes on that by David Gerald. That track called Hit the Button was one of my favourites. It's like two seconds long on the soundtrack album. Nice subtle touch. Um, Gary Mitchell's going all Reed Richards as he gets more powerful. His sideburns are now turning grey. He'd make a good Reed Richards, to be honest with you. I mean, I still think Jeffrey Pike's probably the better choice. Jeffrey Pike, Jeffrey Hunter. The contact lenses were supposed to have a pinprick hole in the middle, which you can just see in that close-up shot, though. Of Gary Mitchell. So that the actors could see how from according to Lockwood. It didn't work. And here we see. Mitchell killing Kelso. Which is. Um, I understand had to be toned down. Again like the frigid. 
you line the network felt that that may be a bit extreme so it shows it looping around his neck and then it fades back to gary mitchell so we've actually seen how far mitchell's willing to go because he's now killed his uh his friend Lee Kelso, command and compassion is a fool mixture. Kurt will follow that up later with one of his best speeches. And here, the big reveal as we go into the final stages of the story. Mitchell having no problem whatsoever of walking out of the... Uh, the brig. Goes up to Elizabeth Denner, who turns to camera to reveal that she too has the silver glowing eyes. Go on, look in the mirror, Dana. Elizabeth Dana. Oh, no! You know, it's textbook, and it? It's, it's in some ways the way 60s television was. That really felt like it should have been an act out, and it wasn't. It wasn't a commercial break, which is strange. Really feels that it should have been a commercial break. In some ways, a lot of these 60s shows have equally good writing as today. Not all of them. Some are cookie-cutter drivel. But the way this is building and building and just giving Kurt more and more problems to have to solve is uh, exceptional. I love the idea that Dr. Piper, is it Piper in this one? I, forget, I mix all the doctors up in the pilot. Doesn't want Spock woken up with a pill. You know, by the time we get to the series proper, McCoy will do everything with a hypo spray. Twelve hours is a long time, Captain. And he calls the Doctor Mark, implying a, a previous familiar relationship. Even though the Doctor Doctor Piper, as he Mark Piper, doesn't have a lot to do in this episode. You know, again, it looks like the backdrop on the planet set is the same as the cage but there's nothing wrong with recycling stuff like that uh i don't i don't know i don't want to say the planet set isn't as good as it is in the cage it's still pretty impressive and one of the things i have mentioned on previous episodes is you know go and look at other shows of this type of this type from this era go and look at the bonanza ponderosa from a 1966 episode of Bonanza, and it looks like a soundstage. So other shows couldn't even make a Western set look convincing. And yet Star Trek was here trying to make alien planets every week on an, an equivalent budget. So I, I think it's unfair <coughs> excuse me, to judge Star Trek on that level. It was doing something wildly more imaginative, wildly more expensive, and wildly more difficult than anything Bonanza was doing. Again, it reminds me of Doctor Who being accused of having wobbly scenery and, and shit like that. If you go back and look at any show of the BBCs in the 60s, there's an episode of Open All Hours I remember seeing where somebody places a ladder up against a wall and the wall shakes. But apparently that's acceptable because Open All Hours isn't Doctor Who. So, you know. The direction does a good enough job of keeping everything in tight and close so the set doesn't look as setty as it could do. I'll say it doesn't look bad. I do wonder why, on a pile episode that does have a little bit of a large budget, they didn't go location filming for this. 
<coughs> but maybe that was part of the the test. Could they make a, a planet set on a, a seven, eight day shooting schedule? It does feature all of the interesting things that will go to make up Star Trek episodes. You know, half of it takes place on the ship, half of it takes place on an alien planet. You've got your basic episodes though. Those that were bottle shows that took place entirely on the ship and those that took place on alien planets. Again, proving that this is very much a star vehicle. It's Kirk who must solve the problem at the end on his own. Shatner completely failing to ham it up. Um, I wish we'd got this William Shatner more. I really do. I mean, I find over-the-top Shatner just as entertaining as anybody else does. But I can't help but think it would have been better for him had he maintained this career path of being quite underplayed and subtle. Especially in a show like Star Trek that could be quite broad anyway. This needed the Christopher Reeve treatment of underplaying the material. And in this episode, Shatner does that. See, we're already seeing the kinks in Mitchell's armour as he starts talking about humanity is unimportant. Kirk's reaction to seeing Dana with the silver eyes. Great performance from Shatner. Very subtle, very understated. I love that his uniform's filthy. A lot of the times we'd see, you know, the crew doing stuff like this and the uniform remaining pristine. Not here. The first time we get Shatner commanding the screen with one of his little speeches. It's not quite as to the camera as they would be in The Ultimate Computer or The Omega Glory or A Taste of Armageddon or Mirror Mirror. <coughs> Shatner's just compelling. I mean, I keep... I love this line. Alelsa, God needs compassion. Which is Star Trek's philosophy in a nutshell. You know, sometimes there are people who you need to fight. Sometimes there is a time to fight when it's unavoidable. But compassion is ultimately the way forward. Should always be a last resort. Even though there are people who need a good ass kicking every now and again. We keep married. <coughs> Catrice for one minute longer. What is he happening to him? This is great. I, I genuinely do love this pilot. I love the cage because of its cinematic quality and the fact that it was unlike any Star Trek that we got again. But um, I love this pilot as well. I love this pilot as well for being completely different from the cage yet still being recognisably Star Trek. <laughs> And here we see one of the finest goofs in Star Trek history. The gravestone with uh, Captain Kirk's name on it. Where apparently uh, his best friend, Gary Mitchell, did not know that Captain's middle name was not Richard, but actually Tiberius. I do wonder what was the temptation though to fix that in these HD releases. 
<coughs> was there a temptation to uh, brush that out and make it James T. Kirk? And I wonder what the original middle name for him was before they settled on T. I wonder if they'd even give it that thought. Some people have speculated this is an alternate reality, where it's James Arker, not James T. Kirk. Um, I always think that's overthinking it a little bit. You know, it's just a continuity goof. It's it's the same as, I think it's in Charlie X, where he walks into the turbo lift in his yellow jumper and comes out in these green wrap around. It's just a goof. Just, let's not give it much more thought. Not to both of you. Uh, Kirk doing wonderfully subtle things here whilst he's been tortured and not overacting by Mitchell pointing out all the ways that he's not really given in Dana consideration or equal billing or equal footing or equal pay in many ways and uh, he's appealing to Dana's humanity that what Mitchell is doing here is wrong absolute power corrupting absolutely Another one of Star Trek's key themes. That's great. It's really good. And what I like about this as well is Kirk basically convincing Dana, Dr. Dana, to help him. Because even Kirk knows that he can't be a god on his own. Well, until Star Trek V, obviously. But arguably Star Trek V wasn't Captain Kirk, it was William Shatner. It certainly wasn't Captain Kirk appeared in Star Trek Generations. That was very definitely William Shatner. That's another story. Oh, Dana's done enough to wear down his power so his eyes have returned to normal, allowing Shatner to deliver a couple of magnificent Shatner blows. Oh, in HD, that makes it quite clear that that though wasn't William Shatner. Which is weird, because he seems to be doing a lot of his own stunts here. But not that one. I mean, I can understand why that's not Gary Lockwood falling over the rock like that. Oh, shirt rip. Again, the network felt perhaps that this battle was a little bit much for network television of the time. Roddenberry had to remove Kirk kicking Mitchell in the crotch, which apparently they considered too much. Kirk's about to drop a rock on his head and kill him and leaves it too long. Hesitation. Sorry, James. Gary Mitchell gives a, a good performance this as well. He's not hammy. As Dr. Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell. Uh, Gary Mitchell. Lieutenant Gary Mitchell. It could very easily have teetered over into parody. Lockwood never does that. And I wonder if that's perhaps why Shatner underplays it as well. He's not got an adversary here. That was a good stunt. Just grabbing him by the wrist and flicking him over. I wonder if that's why Shatner doesn't go over the top. Now, this ending here has, has always seemed a little bit silly. When Kirk fires <coughs> and crushes Mitchell under all the rocks, though, he's still got the power of a god, so one would assume he could get out from under that with no problems, but, you know, whatever. Would have been good, I think, though, to have Dana hit him with one last blast, his eyes turn to normal, and then Kirk entombs him. And that could then lead into this bit here, where Dr. Dana, her power spent, also passes away.
didn't make Shatner shave his chest for this one either. Contrary to popular belief, Shatner didn't like taking his top off in Star Trek because they always made him shave his chest, which he didn't like. Look at the size of those communicators. That's Star Trek II communicators, not the original series. But again, it shows the development of tech. Tech gets smaller as it goes along until people have had enough of that and then it gets bigger again. Again, the Enterprise in the new shot, though, doesn't look as hefty as perhaps it could do. Not a bad shot, though. Not a bad shot. I love that Kirk here is still wounded. He's got a, a cast on his arm. And even here at the end, his compassion shows through. That he gives commendations to Dr. Dana and Gary Mitchell. Brilliant, brilliant pilot. Brilliant episode ends. He didn't ask for what happened to him. Oh, well, that's a beautiful ending because it shows that Spock was offering logic as his opinion. It wasn't a personal feeling against Gary Mitchell. He wanted his job. A little smile from Spock at the end, though. When uh, when Kirk says, I believe that there was hope for you yet, Mr. Spock. And the Enterprise voyages off to its first adventure. <laughs> now, are we going to get the uh, What's It credits? Oh, no, we're going to get the... There is an alternate cut of this episode where the end theme is different. That's on the, the soundtrack that I mentioned that I had on vinyl. Uh, there's some cuts to the episode, some changes to where the episode laid out, but for the most part, um, not really a lot of footage. Yeah, Dr. Piper. Yeah, Paul Carr was Kelso. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that, because nothing says Christmas more than an episode of Star Trek, or at least on this show. Oh, they're naked now. That's that still low. Are we going to get the Green Lady, or are we getting Balok? We're getting the Green Lady at the end. Nice to see Susan Oliver before we, we bail out. All that remains for me is to say have a very good Christmas and a happy new year or Merry Christmas. Happy new year. Uh, thanks for supporting this drivel for another year. Uh, as usual, you can email, email me, email me, he-man me at uh, heykidscomics.virginmedia.com. If you haven't finished your Christmas shopping, pop by the Amazon link on the 2TrueFreaks.com webpage. Click on that, buy your shit through there and we'll get the kickback. That's nice, and uh, I will see you all in the new year. Probably going to take a bit of a break now before we go into the new year with all new episodes, some of which you'll hear real soon. Okay, take care. Everything's going to be all right. Goodbye.